It's been nine days since Russia invaded Ukraine. One million refugees have exited the country, and over 100,000 have been internally displaced. As the attacks on major cities and residential parts of Ukraine continue, experts estimate the humanitarian crisis could swell up to four million refugees in the coming weeks. Here to discuss this and more is Stefan Lehmeyer. He's Deputy Director for Europe Planning at the International Rescue Committee. Hi, Stefan. Welcome to Reset. Hi, Sasha. Thanks for having me. Before Russia attacked, were you at all anticipating that this conflict would result in nearly a million Ukrainian refugees in just one week? No. um, We have been monitoring the situation probably as far back as December in terms of ongoing close monitoring and um, looked at various scenarios. We also had, as a worst-case scenario, an all-out war. Um, but we didn't really put most of our energy into analyzing that scenario fully because we could not imagine that this would really happen. So it really only was days ahead of the actual invasion that we began um, focusing on this, and now we're right in the midst of it. What do you think, Stefan? Do civilians usually pay the highest price of war and, and conflict between nations? Uh, yes, I think for for quite a while now, maybe since the end of the Cold War, even going further back, we've seen that uh, civilians um, make up 90% of the fatalities in any armed conflict. And um, here in, in this newest conflict between Russia and, and Ukraine, we can already see a few days in that the tactics are um, becoming ever more um, harmful and that civilians are ever more in, in danger. Uh, the IRC has been on the ground in Ukraine. What can you tell us about what Ukrainians are actually living through this week? So at this point, um, our Ukrainian partners um, that we're in close contact with and that we're supporting um, are sharing with us that um, people, especially in the larger cities of um, Ukraine that may be encircled at this point or at risk of being encircled, um, are affected, first of all, through the fact that often they have to spend long times um, in bunkers and basements uh, to shelter from from shelling and missiles that are coming in. Uh, when you're in a shelter for an hour, that's one thing, but if you're there for two days, mm-hmm. um, that's much more difficult uh, physically but also psychologically. Um, also, the supply lines in many parts of uh, Ukraine, especially in the east, of course, uh, um, are affected. Um, the food is getting scarce, as we saw yesterday with the nuclear power plant incident. Electricity might also become an issue soon. So um, as the days go by, the, the, the problems for civilians are becoming ever more um, significant. So how is uh, the humanitarian community meeting those needs? Um, in the countries neighboring Ukraine, we are able to respond right now. We have full access, and um, many, many governments in Europe, in North America, elsewhere, want to help and are providing funding um, the population in many countries is also donating, so we're able to respond right now. But in Ukraine itself, it is very complicated to to respond as much as we would like to because our own staff are not safe. Uh, certain areas are not accessible. They may be accessible today, but not tomorrow as battle zones shift. Uh, civilian infrastructure that we would also need to use is mm-hmm. being affected, whether it's telecommunications or banking or warehousing. Um, so we're all of us... Um, Aid organizations, UN agencies, and others are really struggling at the moment to mount a proper response. At this point, it's really the Ukrainian people themselves who are carrying most of the the burden, helping those in need. And we're working against the clock um, to increase our capacities and and, um, work alongside them in the coming days and weeks. And let's be clear, even if Russia stops 
attacking right now. Ukrainians still face a massive humanitarian crisis here. What resources would you say they need the most? Um, so this is going to evolve, of course, uh, as the weeks and months go by. But if we assume, as you said, that fighting would stop today, uh, even then, um, right now, we would have to um, make sure that enough food is available. Um, it's not so much that there isn't food in Ukraine, but it's about being able to uh, deliver it to, to the various cities. Um, we're also understanding that medical supplies are, are beginning to dwindle. Um, I think those are some of the most urgent needs, really, that, that we're seeing right now. But I, can, I really need to emphasize that as the weeks and months now continue, mm-hmm. uh, we will see ever more significant and diverse needs uh, in all sectors because these are two countries clashing. This is Russia invading Ukraine with 44 million inhabitants. And if you destroy significant parts of the country's economic infrastructure, the needs will be um, significant. Has the wide access to social media been helping? I think it's, it's helped in, in, in many different ways. It helps inside Ukraine because people maybe have a better sense of what's going on and they can they have more options of keeping themselves safe. But social media, I think, have also helped by making the world aware of um, the different things that are happening and um, attracting people's attention, motivating them to donate, also motivating politicians to pay attention and take um, steps such as uh, sanctions but also humanitarian assistance. So it has been helping. Social media is a two-edged sword. Mm-hmm. We also have fake information. We have hate that's being incited in different forms, but um, we are benefiting at this very moment uh, from the amount of information that's being made available. Contrary to many other crises that are happening at the same time in our world that we know so much less about, like Yemen or even the impending famine in Afghanistan that we should be talking about more. Yeah, yeah I want to get your, your thoughts on something another guest said to us earlier this week on the show, still regarding social media. Uh, they made the point that other conflicts have been streamed on social media before, including, you know, when Russia bombarded Syria's civilian population back in 2015. But at that time, that didn't get the same level of aid that we're seeing with Ukraine. What do you think about that? What made the difference there? This is a a very good question. Um, I think that um, sometimes our response in terms of how much is being donated, how much attention is being paid, um, has a lot to do with how much we can empathize with what's happening, and that in turn probably has a lot to do with um, how many commonalities we think there are between those affected and ourselves. And the more we can see ourselves in that person that we see on our screen, the more we probably will be affected by the information and then feel compelled to act. Um, It's probably a very natural thing, but I think we really need to work against that bias that we all have so that we can uh, um, empathize with all the suffering that is taking place um, and, and help. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a very, um, it's almost like a philosophical statement, but I, I really think this is a responsibility that we all have to know that bias that we have inside ourselves and, and check against it. Let's turn to uh, global impacts of this crisis. Ukraine and Russia produce nearly a quarter of the world's wheat. How might these attacks and what follows affect our global food supply? Um, I, I think... I can already answer part of this, but uh, one thing that stands out for us as humanitarians is that the World Food Program um, gets about half of its global supply, if I understand correctly, from Ukraine. So as the World Food Program and other organizations are helping in places like Syria, Yemen, Horn of Africa, and elsewhere, um, having such a big 
um, difficulty getting supplies from a place like Ukraine means that prices will go up um, in all those other um, humanitarian locations, and humanitarians will struggle to provide help there as well. So you'll, you'll have all these knock-on effects way beyond Ukraine itself, while Ukraine as a country will also be affected first and foremost, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so will it mostly have an impact on the, the global consumer base? This sounds really daunting, especially during this time of high inflation rates. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like a perfect storm in that sense. You already have uh, the, the spikes in inflation um, everywhere, and then to have to lose such a massive uh, part of the, the, the supply chain um, can only have a, a, a compounding effect. Sure. Absolutely. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, we're talking about Ukraine's current humanitarian crisis with Stefan Lehmeyer. He's Deputy Director for Europe Planning at the International Rescue Committee. Coming up in five minutes on the program, we'll check in with officials from Loyola University and Illinois Urbana-Champaign about masks on campus. So stay with us for that conversation. Uh, Is the IRC, Stefan, are they facing challenges to mobilize aid and international support for these refugees? You talked earlier about uh, it being a difficult time. Tell us more what those challenges are. Yeah. So on the, we, we're still getting uh, donations uh, that are really enabling us to, to act now. So on that front, we're, we're doing well. And it's amazing how people are um, trying to, to support um, those efforts. The greatest difficulty really is, um, at this point, is getting into Ukraine. Of, of all the things we're trying to do, you know, responding in the countries neighboring Ukraine, responding in other parts of the European Union, all that is going well. But getting into Ukraine, getting access and maintaining that access is um, an incredible difficulty that we have at the moment. Just yesterday, from from what we're hearing, the Russian and Ukrainian governments met and agreed on putting in place humanitarian corridors such that people could flee from battle zones and so that we can get in and provide assistance. But it's one thing to decide, but it's another thing to actually put it into action. So we're waiting now to see whether the governments actually honor those promises that, they're, that they made and, and, and open up those spaces. Mm-hmm. Also, when troops are engaged in, in active uh, combat, um, it, there's not necessarily a guarantee that these corridors, once declared, will be uh, respected. So these will be very dangerous um, environments for us to work in. And as I mentioned before, the, um, seeing the infrastructure in Ukraine being destroyed um, only makes our work so much more difficult. When, when electricity is gone and we have to generate that ourselves, when uh, bridges are blown up and we have to cross rivers in other ways, um, all of these things really um, make our work incredibly complicated and more expensive as well. Yeah, will those corridors you mentioned also be used to transport goods? Yes, that's the idea, is that um, we, we get information from the government which areas um, are supposedly safe, and then we will have to adjust our uh, logistical routes such that we, we route them um, through these, these corridors. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, yesterday, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs discussed the crisis. One of the panelists, Ziad Ra'ad al-Hussein, uh, who's the former UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, he said something that really struck me. I, I see Zelensky is asking for a ceasefire. Uh, if you don't have a ceasefire accompanied by uh, a mechanism for disengagement of the forces and withdrawal of forces, the ceasefire politically only serves the um, aggressor. And while there's a humanitarian need to save lives, politically it would be disastrous to just have a ceasefire for the sake of it. What do you think about that? 
Yeah, I, I would rather not comment on the political and military uh, considerations, but um, I can only emphasize that uh, active combat, uh, when it's going on, is uh, either complicating our work or making it impossible. So that is a, a, certainly a, a fact. Um, any zones that are being shelled or where you know troops clash with each other are zones that we just cannot get into, or, or only in extremely limited ways. So uh, there's there's an immediate um, impact in the humanitarian sphere um, when these hostilities continue. Um, but surely, arranging ceasefires, stopping the fighting in certain places at certain times will favor one side or another. I, I do realize that, but um, as humanitarians, um, we're really focused on, on saving those lives and alleviating suffering, and we can't do that wherever there's active fighting. Well, I want to use this last minute with you, Stefan, to have you talk to us about how other countries can get involved here and what individual folks can do to help. So from a humanitarian perspective, the very first thing, it may sound banal, but really donating money is the most effective thing at this very moment because um, with, with money we can operate very flexibly, very quickly, and generate impact for, our, for, for people who are fleeing in the immediate sense. When you donate clothes or stuffed animals or food, all this has to be transported, it has to be distributed, and that can be a lot more complicated and costly and slow than donating money, which we can use to purchase the right items at the right time in the right place. But aside from that, I think maintaining that interest in how the situation is evolving and encouraging politicians to keep paying attention is also important. So that, for example, um, in other parts of the European Union or also in the U.S., um, asylum laws um, are um, kept flexible such that Ukrainians can come to the U.S., can come to different parts of the European Union and um, get support, get services, get shelter um, while their homeland is, is, is under attack. So those are two things that are, I think, important. Stefan Lehmeyer is the Deputy Director for Europe Planning at the International Rescue Committee. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.